button. So there's that. All right, that's good. So what I'll do is I'll do a um, uh, I'll do an intro of the uh, of the episode. I'll do an intro of you, and then I'll say, Larry, thank you for being here. Welcome. And then you can say, hi, guy, great to be here or whatever you want to say. Okay. And then the, the first uh, story, the first question I ask is, tell us how you get involved in studying the Shroud. So what is your uh, backstory on the Shroud of Turin? Okay, gotcha. And then, um, then when we finish, uh, um, I'll, uh, uh, we'll finish, but then, you know, just stay on the line. I'll stop the recording and then we can, we can just talk. All right. So uh, let me... Uh, this chair, I keep sliding down on it and it drives me nuts. <laughs> so, uh, all right, so here we go. Um, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Guy Powell and welcome to the next episode of the Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more of these episodes. I am the author of the upcoming book, The Only Witness, it is a historical fiction tracing a possible history of the Shroud over the last two millennia. Today, we'll be speaking with Larry Stolle, and he's an expert on biblical references to the Shroud, and we'll be talking about potential hidden references to the Shroud during the early uh, era of the church. Uh, Larry's written uh, a dozen papers on the topic of the hidden references to the Shroud, and they can either be found at shroud.com or on academia.edu. Uh, his research and findings can also be found at theincredibleshroud.com, uh, which is his website, and you can find them under the authenticity page. Larry even has a paper that was translated into Arabic by the Coptic Church in Egypt, and that's kind of fascinating and be interesting to see what their opinion is on that. So, th Larry, thank you for being here and welcome. Well, thank you very much, Guy. I, I'm honored to be on your program. Uh, greetings to your to your audience. Thank you. Appreciate that. So, tell us your backstory on how you got involved in the Shroud of Turin. Well, Guy, if 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 you would have told me ten years ago I'd be sitting here being interviewed on the Shroud, I would have said no way. I mean, I just uh, glory to God that He would. Uh, use me in any way to further uh, the knowledge of the Shroud. When I first heard about the Shroud, I don't recall, maybe 10, 12 years ago, I thought, oh, no way, no way. This is just medieval relic, a forgery. And sometime later, I read something, it might have been by Gary Haberus, a New Testament scholar in the resurrection. I, I read something that intrigued me. I thought, well, that's interesting. So I started researching the subject myself, and I was amazed at all the forensic and historical evidence to support the authenticity of the shroud. The more I studied, just the more convinced I became, that, and very surprisingly, that this is the authentic burial cloth of our Lord. Yeah, definitely. And uh, it is kind of funny how uh, just about everybody I've interviewed, they all have a very different story. And and, uh, you know, it's kind of like something happened off in the distance or whatever, and then it, it kind of like sparks their interest. And then the more you get involved in it, and same with me, 
the more I got involved in it, the more I realized that, hey, there is definitely something here and it, it's worth reading about. So, uh, and that brought me to a, a couple of your papers. I just read uh, one of your papers uh, called The Shroud of Turin Served as a Tabernacle During the High Priestly Ministry of Jesus. Tell us a little bit about that one. Well, I, I think that is a fascinating uh, text. Now, as you mentioned, Guy, my, my interest and expertise is really in the biblical text. I was training to be a Bible translator. I went to a Bible college seminary, and I had four to five years of New Testament Greek. And so uh, one thing I saw a void in concerning the shroud was that there's no references to it or that there wasn't much research on that within the biblical text. And John Calvin, for one, said this, this particular shroud cannot be genuine because surely the gospel writers would have made mention of it. And so it seemed to me that due to persecution, that could give a plausible uh, reason for any reference that is in the text would be hidden, esoteric, veiled. And so you mentioned the uh, Hebrews. So yeah, I, I believe that uh, in Hebrews, we have what's called the, uh, the sacred tent, the tabernacle. And it's actually, uh, there's, a, there's a chiasmus, I believe, in, in Hebrews. It's, chiasmus is a Semitic inverted pattern. And the simple form in Hebrews that I see concerning the shroud is A, B, B prime, A prime. And so you have in chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, how Jesus um, uh, entered the veil, within the veil. Uh, he's in the heavenly sanctuary. Then you've got in chapter 8, verse 2, the mentioning of the tabernacle, the sacred tent that was pitched by God, not by man. And then that's brought up again in chapter 9, uh, I think it's verses 11 and 12. And that's the key text, that through the sacred tent, and he says they're the greater, more perfect tabernacle, not of this creation that is not made by human hands. And with his own blood, he entered the heavenly sanctuary. So I think there's a riddle there. Uh, Guy, the, the primary text that I've written on, uh, there's a half a dozen of them that are riddles. And that's, I believe, I believe the shroud is the best solution to these riddles. So what is this sacred tent, this kini there uh, in, in Greek the, that was pitched by God, not by man, uh, not of this creation. And it, it, it somehow is connected with the blood of Christ. And then in chapter 10, the next chapter, he talks about he's inaugurated for us a new way into the presence of God by his flesh, uh, he says, through the curtain. So I, so I believe we see typologically there the theology behind the shroud in the early church. One way it was understood was to identify it with the outer court of the tabernacle, the, the first compartment, and that inner curtain that separated the two compartments. And that when Jesus's body dematerialized and went through the shroud it was like him going through the curtain through the veil 
uh, entering the heavenly sanctuary. It was when heaven met earth. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's um, an indication of how the early church, one way they understood the shroud. Yeah, it's interesting too, and uh, that it was, uh, the references are kind of indirect, they're veiled. And, uh, you know, and in a similar way, when you think about Revelation, um, is Revelation also kind of a veiled, uh, has veiled references as well to the political situation with the, with the Romans and, and the Roman emperor and stuff like that. So they were very used to being very, uh, very clear how to write in, veiled, in a veiled way. And so it makes a lot of sense that potentially in Hebrews that that's exactly what they were doing. Yeah, that, that, that's a good point. The apocalypse, the hidden uh, re revelation, vision. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So you mentioned that you uh, you studied uh, Greek, uh, ancient Greek uh, for, uh, I don't know, 40 years or so. Uh, so it sounds like with that background, you're perfectly situated to really understand all of the nuances that you find in, in the original uh, Greek text? Well, I, it wasn't ancient Greek, it was Koine Greek, the New Testament Greek, but I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, a professor, I'm not uh, an expertise, but I, I'm skilled enough that God is using me this way and had a lot of interest uh, just in the text itself, yes. The, that was really my passion in seminary and school, that in church history. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. It is. Uh, it is fascinating. I mean, uh, I uh, when I uh, about twenty years ago, I I used to live in in Germany and and was fluent in German. And um, one of the things that uh, I'd really like to do is is to be able to read the Greek text, uh, you know, and even the Hebrew text. But then I realized, oh man, that's that is a real challenge. So kudos <laughs> to you that <laughs> that you're able to do that. So uh, well, thank you, guy. I, uh, glory to God. Uh, Here's the riddle that that text in Hebrew leaves us with. When Christ came and ministered as the superior high priest, what could be described as the greater sacred tent that was not made by human hands, not of this creation, yet was associated with his actual blood and assisted with his entry into the heavenly sanctuary? There's a sacred tent associated with his blood that he associates also with the veil and his entrance from earth to heaven, the heavenly realm. So, uh, yeah, it's a riddle. That that really is. But when you you think about all of the all of the pieces that are recognizable in the shroud, it has his blood on it. It yeah. is a cloth similar to a tent. It is then when he transitioned from being of this world to being of uh, you know in heaven. And, uh, and that all of those things make so much uh, sense. And then there's also his image, uh, you know, not made by human hands. And I can never pronounce that, that Greek word <laughs> yeah. that, that says that. But nevertheless, you know, that's four really good points that, that refer specifically to that text. And then, of course, to what you can see on the shroud. Yeah. You know, something just recently the Lord showed me. Just several verses, I think it's seven verses before uh, 11, I think it's verse four, chapter nine, verse four, where the writer talks about the Ark of the Covenant. And within that Ark of the Covenant, they kept the jar of manna. And he says, Aaron's rod that budded. And you go back to the Old Testament, and the reason they were told to keep that object 
and to put it in what was called the testimonies, the, the Ark of the Testimonies. This was to be a testimony for future generations, a sign, it says a sign against the rebels, Korah's rebellion and how God had selected Aaron to be the leader that they challenged. And uh, God gave a sign of his leadership with uh, his rod budding, blossoming and even having almonds. And, and so I, it seems to me, we could think of the shroud similarly that God left the, our forefathers, an object that was to be kept in the Ark of the Testimonies as a sign for future generations against the rebels. And, and another text that I, I believe deals with the shroud hidden reference is this, Jesus's opponents asked for a sign from heaven. He just performed two extraordinary miracles uh, on the Sabbath, at least one of them, and his opponents rejected it because it was on the Sabbath. And he says, well, you cast out uh, the demons because you're working with Beelzebub by the prince of demons. And they said, we want to see a sign from heaven, from God's own hand. And in that text, Jesus says, well, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And then he speaks uh, how to be a sign of judgment. And just like the rod of Aaron was to serve as a sign of warning and judgment against the rebels. So one way I look at the shroud, and I think the early church did, not only was it a uh, sacred tent, and I think also uh, we could talk about it being the high priestly tunic of our Lord, uh, another type or uh, a shadow. But the idea that it served as a sign of warning and judgment. This person who's been crucified unjustly, that generation, this is a sign against that generation that crucified the Son of God, um, testimony against them. Uh, but yeah, guy, 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 we probably should mention how, in my opinion, and it's because of the preposition dia there through. In verse, um, uh, chapter nine, verse 11, the preposition is used three times. And the first time there's no verb. And so you could translate that in an instrumental sense that with the sacred tent and with his blood, he entered through the curtain into the heavenly sanctuary. So then you say, okay, what is it that is associated with his body that could be described as a, uh, with his blood and, and a sacred covering, which is what uh, Skinny, a, a tent is a covering. And uh, it's interesting that the tunic, the, the undergarment of the high priest, Aaron's uh, undergarment, and on the day of atonement, he would only wear that into the Holy of Holies. He wouldn't wear all the, his um, breastplate and the precious stones but it would just be this white, and it was to be made of a, a, a costly linen, pure linen. It was to have a special weave, and we know the Shroud Turin has this herringbone weave. And then it was to be sanctified with sprinkled blood of the sacrifice on Aaron's tunic. And so the Shroud of Turin has the three characteristics necessary for a high priestly robe or high priestly garment. So. Uh, Jesus, the Hebrew writer says, was the uh, 
uh, after the order of Melchizedek, who was both priest and king of Salem. And so I think the early church understood theologically different types of how they taught the shroud. And one was then this served as the high priestly undergarment, the tunic of Jesus when he served as a high priest. Mm. Uh, so I, I, don't, I think that's, it's fascinating to me. It is. And I, uh, as I was reading it, I, I was uh, astounded at, at those kind of references and the parallelism between the, you know, the high priest and then Jesus as the, as the high priest and the, and the shroud. So, uh, well, do you think based on what you've read uh, and interpreted then from the New Testament and even some of the non-canonical writings, do you believe that the shroud was purposefully left so that we would be able to see it? Or do you think it was an accident or what, what how, how do you see oh, that? Oh, okay, so it well, was a good question. I do not at all think it was an accident. Uh, I remember one of my parishioners said she would not believe in the shroud because she believed that God would not leave anything like that that might become an idol and people would worship it. And uh, I remember reading how King Hezekiah, when he instigated a, a reform in his revival, part of uh, cleaning out the idols, he as I recall, he destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses had made and had lifted up that John refers to John chapter three, uh, Jesus said that, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the son of man must be lifted up. Apparently the Israelites had turned that into an idol. Hmm. Well, for one thing, as we mentioned in Hebrews, this is something that is not of man's creation. The image, is from the heavenly father. So I, I think it's purposely some, it, the father's witness. First John chapter five, I think the most puzzling passage in the entire New Testament, Jesus uh, came by water and blood, not by the water only, but by the water and by the blood. And there's three that t- testify. Okay, I believe that puzzling passage is another hidden reference to the shroud. Hmm. Um, but in, in, twice, and that's also chiasmus, I believe, uh, that focals in verses 9 and 10, twice he says, the witness of the father that he testified concerning his son. And so I believe that this is the witness or the testimony of the father that he testified. That's a, as I recall, that's a perfect tense of the verb. God did it in the past, but it lingers on. There's the three that... Mm bear witness and testify that the water, the spirit, and the blood. That's in the present tense. Those are all neuter nouns, neuter gendered nouns, but he uses a masculine uh, participle, as I recall, when he says they testify, and it's in the present. So we need to ask ourselves a riddle. What is it that is testifying today? How is it that the spirit, the water, and the blood is testifying? And I think in Jewish jurisprudence, where you need two or three witnesses to confirm something, what the writer is saying is that the father's witness concerning his son, which I believe is the image on the shroud, is buttressed by the testimony of the three who are testifying on its behalf, the water, the spirit, and the blood. Now, the only other place that John uses water and blood together 
is the spear wound in the gospel. Mm. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 34. And there's at least six similarities with John 9, 34 and 35 and this passage in 1 John chapter 5. They both have an emphasis on testimony. It's used in verse 34, I think at least twice. Uh, the one who saw this testifies and, and we know his testimony is true. In 1 John 5, it's mentioned at least 10 times, this, either the noun or the verb to testify. Uh, but you've got the water and the blood there and how it, it's, it's important to John. Uh, for some reason, he, he really draws attention to this water and blood fluid that comes from the side. And Augustine is the one who picked up uh, thinking that somehow that stain has something to do with 1 John chapter 5. Hmm. And, and since Augustine, nobody's ever really gone back there that I can find. Instead, they, uh, they, they think of it in, in, in different ways. But that's an interesting passage. We have to ask ourselves, when, now verse 5 says, this is the one, speaking of Jesus Christ, this is the one who came by water and blood. So we have to ask, well, when was this? Was this at the, his birth? Was it at his, uh, his death, at his resurrection? When did he come by water and blood? And uh, one scholar I really admire and read a lot of, Ben Withington, uh, the second, he says he believes this is the anim um, Mary's amniotic fluid, that this was mm. the incarnation and the fluid. Now, the problem with that, there was, a, I, I mentioned several problems in, in my paper on that text. Uh, Withington's paper was published back in, in uh, I think it was in the 80s, in a, the prestigious peer reviewed journal, New Testament Studies out of Oxford. But there's some, I think, serious problems with that interpretation. Um, one is you have two nouns, they're both anauthorous, governed by one preposition. And they should be seen then as a composite. Water and blood go together. It's like in John chapter three, you must be born of water and the spirit. There's one birth there, represented by water and spirit, okay? But uh, I suggest on that text, that we understand that verb came, echo mine, as going. Sometimes it's not only coming, but it's going. Uh, Jesus says of the prodigal son, he got up and he went to his father. This is that same verb. Mm. So we mentioned Hebrews, how Hebrews chapter 10 gives evidence of the early church understanding Jesus's flesh went through the cloth. And the type, it was a type of him going through the inner veil, the inner curtain of the sanctuary. Well, John, I believe, the, the apostle John, who came to faith because of the shroud, because of the burial linens, John 20, verse 8, he's, he went in the tomb, he saw and believed, okay? He's the one then, uh, when he says this is the one who came by water and blood, and we can understand that. He came with water and blood, but the verb can be translated as, as going, not coming. So I, I suggest you understand it as this is the one who passed through right. water right. and blood. Again, so we went. Yeah, exactly. 
He went through at the time of the resurrection, not mm. the incarnation, but he's speaking of the resurrection because they'll end the passage and say, this I've written to you that you might know, you might have the assurance that you have eternal life. And, and it's not, a, it, it, the blood there, uh, it doesn't stop with the cross. It's the resurrection that uh, our hope is fixed on eternal life. So yeah, so this is the one who passed through water and bloody and represented by the cloth. Um, you know, that's a, that's a fascinating uh, passage. And so, yeah, that... and that's, in the present tense, there are three that are testifying now regarding the, the father's witness. And so on the shroud, you have the water and the blood stain. And it's the spirit because it's a miraculous image. The spirit is testifying in this image with the water and the blood of the crucifixion that this is Jesus Christ, the son of God, mm -hmm. who was crucified, buried, and raised again from the dead. Um, yeah, now that is really... Yeah, that is really fascinating. I like your point about um, it's not it could it might become it might be when you know we went by water and the and the and the blood. That is uh, that yeah. is really interesting. And, and, I, and I think I make the point you actually can do both. You know, he came with the waters of regeneration and the blood of redemption. Okay, so you can take it as came in that sense, but you can also take it as he passed through. When Jesus, when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born of again, he understood it as a second time. But the, the word there, anathen, again, also can have the meaning from above. Hmm. So Jesus is perhaps, he's teasing, I think, Nicodemus. You must be born from above. And Nicodemus understands it as you must be born again. <laughs> and and so both are possible and both are, are correct and i think it's that's the same as true in first john five this is the one who came and this is the one who went mm. but well, that's it's, a fasc it's a fascinating verse because the prepositions immediately change from dia to in epsilon nu and then also the unauthorized nouns water and blood then both are given the definite article and they're both given the preposition separated by the conjunction chi. So they, they both, instead of being a composite, then they become separate. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating passage. That might lead us into the sign of Jonah again. Because you asked me, do I think this was intentional? Yes, I very much do. I believe this is the one sign the primary son uh, that Jesus promised when his opponent said, we want to see a sign from heaven. God's uh, just like God of old sent a lightning bolt for Elijah there on Mount Carmel. They wanted something, the hand of God to signify and witness to who he was. Mm. And that what, that's what the Father Almighty did in the empty tomb. He left behind a miraculous sign that testifies like Jonah was in the whale belly, the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. So the Son of Man was in this tomb of his um, 
his shroud and the earthly tomb for three days and three nights. But as science has shown us, somehow that body was removed from that shroud without disturbing the blood stains, and, and so it, the resurrection took place. Uh, and it, the word sign, simeon, it's, um, it's an outward mark that testifies. Uh, well, in the Old Testament, the rainbow was a sign of God's covenant that he would never destroy the world again by a flood. Uh, the mark of Cain was to mark him out. There was a sign given to him so people would know he was marked. Sign of circumcision is an outward sign for uh, the Israelites that they're God's yep. people. And so uh, how interesting that we have on this burial cloth all these marks that give us this image of a, of a crucified man, uh, a visible sign. Uh, yeah. Which is, and the other, uh, you know, the, I think the reference that most people are aware of is Galatians 3, 1. Who has bewitched you? Or who, who put the evil eye upon you? Who cast the evil eye upon you? Uh, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was posted up as having been crucified. And that, that's a fascinating, fascinating verse. I looked at, I have Whitworth University here in Spokane, Washington. It's a Presbyterian school. And I visited their library and I was able to come across at least 20 different uh, monographs, commentaries on Galatians by some very distinguished uh, you know, scholars. But none of them even suggested that the shroud might be a possibility there. So it's been uh, something that's been hidden away. And I think just now beginning to, yep. scholars are becoming more interested in it because I, uh, almost well, without well, exception, Guy, those 20 commentators followed one another in suggesting that, uh, well, we don't know how this could have happened. So. Paul must be using this as a metaphor about his preaching. He preached such a mighty sermon that it was as if they were right there at the foot of the cross. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is, uh, well, it's not funny, but, uh, you know, and you bring out so many different uh, quotes and, and, uh, and phrases that, that could be interpreted one way. And, and I think when I've, uh, you know, now when I go back and read the New Testament, I'm going to be very much so I'm going to be looking exactly for those phrases and and then look at potential other interpretations that these are veiled references to, you know, the I like what your point is the the water and the blood or the water the blood and the spirit and then and then realizing that you know is that what he is that what the writer meant or is it uh, you know something more literal and it seems like given the the tensions that were going on at at that time uh, for the, you know, the first, uh, you know, 100 years or so of the early church, that they had to have these veiled references, otherwise they, you know, either they'd lose the shroud or they would be, you know, they would be, uh, they'd be murdered and, and killed. And, and uh, you know, so it, it really does make a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that um, they were intentionally secretive, not wanting a hunt uh, for the authorities, whether they were Jewish uh, opponents or government authorities, 
if they become they became aware of this, they may have wanted to hunt it down, confiscate it. And it yep. might be too, it may have been used in a miraculous way. Guy, I think that the Lord, as I read my Old Testament, he often gave his prophets something that was used in performing miracles. Moses and Aaron had their staff, the rod. Elijah and Elisha had a mantle, a covering. Uh, and, and so it, it wouldn't be out of step, I believe, for God Almighty to have left something like the shroud. Paul mentions in the book of Acts, they took handkerchiefs from him to the sick and they were healed. Perhaps, I'm just conjecturing here, perhaps a handkerchief was put over the face of the shroud. Maybe it began to glow. Uh, Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 there about uh, we with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord. And he talks about Moses and how his face glowed. Mm. But th maybe they put the handkerchief on the face of the shroud and then they took that handkerchief to the sick and a healing took place. Because Hebrews chapter, if I understand Hebrews chapter 2 verse 4 correctly, the writer says uh, he's not an immediate uh, he didn't see the Lord himself, but he heard the message or those who heard the message from the Lord then went out preaching the word. And it says God affirmed their preaching with signs and wonders mm. by the Holy Spirit. And uh, Acts chapter one, verse three says with many convincing proofs. Jesus uh, demonstrated himself alive to his apostles. And so you wonder what are these convincing proofs that the early right. church had that Jesus um, was resurrected. Well, and when I think about, you know, your point about the glowing, uh, when I think about, uh, and I don't know if you've been reading at all about the holy fire, uh, on Easter, the patriarch goes in and through prayer, he's able to uh, start this holy fire that does not burn in the in the sepulcher in the church uh, that's over the sepulcher there in, in 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 Jerusalem, and so I could imagine easily Paul being an apostle to be able to do exactly like what you're talking about is to call up a holy fire or a glow and impart that on this handkerchief like you're talking about, and then use that as a, a sign first of all, and then secondly potentially something that might go off and heal somebody. Yeah, I. I, I, I think you're onto something there. And I can also see that the shroud was likely used as an object lesson in teaching about the crucifixion. Uh, you can imagine how in Isaiah 53, surely our griefs he himself bore and our <laughs> sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we are healed. And God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And having the shroud there to show, you know, here is the son of God. This burial shroud was left in the empty tomb. I mean, what a great yeah. object lesson yeah. as you're teaching the, uh, the scriptures. 
Well, and that Isaiah could have said that, you know, 600 years earlier, 500 years earlier, and it had been so specific. And mm -hmm. then here you have then the, the shroud as being the proof of what happened, uh, because the news certainly would have gotten out as the apostles uh, went out and preached, and then their followers preached, and the news would have gotten out that Jesus would have been uh, crucified and then, of course, resurrected. And but then to also bring the shroud with him and say, look at this, here's where he was stabbed. Here's yeah. all of the scourging marks that took place. And then this is the image that he left behind purposefully as part of the resurrection. Yeah. Uh, somehow the early church, it, it just exploded. And I think miracles had a part. Yeah. In it. Yeah. And yeah. It, yeah. It's not. Uh, far stretched for me to believe that the shroud played a role in that. Well, we've got uh, just a couple minutes left. Uh, would you uh, want to talk a little bit maybe about some of the non-canonical uh, references? You talked about the Book of Thomas and the Hymn of Pearls and, and how potentially well, that might. Uh, yes, I, you know, I just uploaded a revised uh, uh, copy of my paper. I've got a paper, it's titled, Are There Veiled References to the Shroud of Turin in the New Testament? And in the appendix, there's three or four references, I believe, that are uh, excellent candidates to be the shroud, and that's from the early church outside the biblical canon. And so you mentioned the hymn of the pearl, and uh, yeah, it's fascinating. We know that was written before, what was it, 232, somewhere around there, yeah. before that date. And here is Thomas, who in the Acts of Thomas is portrayed as the identical twin of Jesus. And he says he sees this image of himself after he's completed his mission. And it has this double image. And, and it's the King of Kings embroidered on this on his princely robe. That, that very much sounds like the shroud had an influence on that. Now, one I, I think the Lord showed me, I discovered in the, in the writings of Eusebius, uh, in his church history, this would have been late third or early fourth century, where Peter, I mean, uh, well, yeah, Eusebius says when Peter went to Rome, he took with him, he says he was clothed in divine armor, or protected with the divine armor, and he took the precious merchandise, mm. the precious merchandise of the revealed light to Rome announcing the light itself. And you wonder, what is this precious merchandise that Peter took with him to Rome? And of course, we know how Joseph of Arimathea purchased a precious piece of linen, a very expensive linen cloth, perhaps intended for a high priestly robe from a merchant. You know? <laughs> and so that could be a cryptic uh, reference to the shroud. And then there's the one that tomb of uh, Abbasius, the inscription of Abbasius on the, uh, the late second century inscription on a monumental a tomb uh, where the missionary has apparently gone to Rome to evangelize what we think is probably Edessa, the king there. And on his tomb there, he's got that cryptic mm. message. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's one. Um, you know, there's a couple of ones in the New Testament that I just briefly uh, cover. Yeah. We don't commonly look at, 
But you've got 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Mm. Now the word dimly is, we get our word enigma. It's a riddle. I believe there's a I believe there's a half a dozen primary uh, texts, excellent candidates for the shroud in the New Testament, and all of the, all six of them remain a riddle. If if it's not the shroud, okay, um, that particular text. Now we behold. Now we are seeing. It's a present participle, as I recall. Now we are seeing dimly as in a mirror. Now, they, you know, they had polished metals about the be best they could do. And we see in a riddle, but then face to face. So there's no object to the verb. What do we see? He doesn't say, but it's not that hard to figure it out. Now we see the face of Christ dimly as a riddle, as in a mirror. A, a mirror. But when he returns, we will see him then face to face. So, you know, I think we just finished that sentence. It seems like a reference that shrouds in the background. And then we've got in Colossians 1, I believe it's verse 15. Scholars believe this is the beginning of an ancient Christian hymn, verses 15 through 20. The, the vocabulary is unpauline. The literary style is non-Pauline, unpauline. So it's got words and, and literary style, not characteristic of Paul. And it's poetic, it's a poetic poem. And it opens with this, who is the image of the invisible God? Mm. Now, how can something invisible have an image? <laughs> okay, and that has puzzled theologians for centuries. There's a puzzle there, there's a riddle, who, he uses his relative pronoun who, which is perfect for the, the man of the cloth. He doesn't say he is the image of the invisible cloth. That might have increased the docetic tendency there at Colossae that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. But anyway, I think that possibly is another good hidden reference. Scholars believe that is the beginning of an ancient Christian hymn, and plenty of the younger over in Bithynia in the early second century, he talked about how on an appointed day, Christians gathered and they sang an antiphonal hymn as a hymn to a God. And I'm not saying it's that hymn, but maybe something like that, you know? Right, right. And that, and that the shroud may have been in the shadows of this ancient hymn, his image, the image of the invisible God, and Jesus became invisible when that image we think was created. So that's a fascinating one to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I'm amazed at how many, uh, you know, you've got that are just like that. And, and it definitely takes your skill set to understand that, that biblical yeah. Greek to be able to know the nuances of the different words and the missing yeah, you know, like you're saying, the missing objects or the you know potential different meetings that uh, that are in there. That is uh, fascinating. So, is there anything uh, you're working on now that uh, you want to uh, mention and uh, tease tease us all with? Well, I, I'm wanting to do a paper just on the theology behind the shroud in the apostolic era. We mentioned a few ways that the 
shroud apparently was looked upon and perceived in a typological manner. And I'd like to put several of those ways that the Lord has shown me uh, into a paper to focus on the theology behind the shroud in the early church. Yeah, yeah, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I'm hoping and, to put, put all my papers together into a book, hidden references to the shroud in the, in the New Testament. Well, it uh, it'll definitely be a, a good read because it it really I think what 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 we just talked about um, you know it brings up the theological side of, of what's being said, but then also kind of the the hidden side of uh, what's being said, and then the meaning of it in terms of why did Christ or why did God leave this this image of this cloth uh, to us? so that we could then be use that for our own uh, understanding and our own faith and our own faith journeys. Yeah. You know, Guy, uh, right after Paul says, now we see dimly in a mirror, but then face to face, then you know, he'll say, now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And I never would have dreamed, but this shroud has strengthened my faith. It has enhanced my hope, and it has deepened my love for the Lord. Mm. Praise be to him. And we can use this shroud to help teach the gospel. God's love for the world that he gave his only son as punishment for our sins. But he's not a dead savior. He arose mm. from the grave. And that's what I would encourage everybody is to uh, use this. It's, a, it's the father's. I believe it's the father's testimony the, the definite article the testimony <clears throat> and the sign uh, for the truth of the gospel yeah absolutely and uh i mean what what greater love than uh is there than that and uh, to give your only begotten son and the suffering uh there's a whole there's so much that you can read into that and i i agree with you that uh is is really very meaningful from what from what paul wrote there yeah. So, well, well let's, you, uh, yeah, Larry, thank you so much. Uh, let's close it there as much as I'd love to keep going. There are so many other things when I was, uh, <laughs> reading your, your paper, I was going to, to the Bible and copy and pasting the, you know, different verses. And, and I just, uh, I thought it was fascinating. I, uh, I'm looking forward to your book at some point. So, uh, definitely be good. Yours too. Yours yeah, absolutely. Thank you so, so much. yeah, absolutely. Larry, thank you so much. So, uh, for more information on you, they should go to theincredibleshroud.com, theincredibleshroud.com. Yeah, I think I'm being shadow banned. Uh, my papers and the website, I, last month I got over, I, I think it said a thousand hits on my website. But if I go uh, to my Bra Brave browser, I put my name in, my papers don't come up on academia, my <laughs> website doesn't come up. You go to academia and you put their my name in the search engine. My papers don't come up. I, oh. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, I get them uh, by email from my academia.edu and I download every one of them. So yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Well, anyway, I hope you're not being shadow banned. But every uh, otherwise, if you go to theincredibleshroud.com, you'll find out more uh, about Larry's papers and writings and uh, just fascinating to understand how the shroud uh, is is very most likely referenced uh, specifically uh, in the in the New Testament. Uh, 
Otherwise, please stay tuned for many other videos in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. Please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. And if you like this one, please rate it with five stars. Thank you so much. And thank you, Larry. Thank you. God bless. Thank you.